If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 38 this morning. As you turn there, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that through your word we gain knowledge of you. And through your word, Lord, we are sanctified. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would take your word this morning and work upon our minds and our hearts. Transform us as we ponder this encounter that Mary had with the angel Gabriel, one of the most incredible stories in the Bible. Stir our hearts, Lord, to wonder. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine being a 15-year-old Jewish girl. 15, 14. You're living in Israel, and you're under the occupation of Rome. You come from a faithful Jewish family. You've been taught the scriptures from the Old Testament. You've gone to synagogue. And not only that, you're, you're growing up as a teenager in an age of anticipation. The people of Israel are looking for and longing for their Messiah to come, the Anointed One of God, who will restore Israel to its former glory. They're longing to see the throne of David reestablished in Israel. This Messiah is the expected offspring of David who will reestablish the throne of David and free Israel from the oppression under Roman rule. So I want you to imagine being that 15-year-old girl learning about these things. Even growing yourself in anticipation and expectation for your deliverer to be revealed. There's this hope-filled anticipation for the coming of the Messiah, yet you don't know exactly when it will be. But what would definitely never cross your mind is the possibility that you might be the instrument that God will use in bringing his Messiah into the world. And this is precisely what we have here in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. A young virgin girl named Mary is told by an angel that she will be the mother of the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel. So here in verses 26 to 30, we, we see this angelic encounter that Mary has. So look at verses 26 to 30. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So an angel named Gabriel is sent by God, and he's specifically sent to Nazareth. A city, really, not a city, it's more of like a small town, approximately probably about 500 people would have lived in this town. There was nothing spectacular about Nazareth. In fact, one of the references we have in the New Testament about Nazareth is when Philip finds Nathanael and tells him that he's found the Savior and he's from Nazareth. And Nathanael's response is quite comical. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the answer, of course, is no. But it's to this city that Gabriel was sent. Because in this city was a young virgin by the name of Mary who was engaged to Joseph who was of the house of David, which is important because he is of the lineage of King David. But Gabriel sent to her precisely because she will be God's servant in fulfilling the promise he made to his people that the Messiah, the Deliverer, would come, the Anointed One of God. This teenage girl, as we see here, has found favor with God. As Gabriel states, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you in verse 28, and also in verse verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The word here, favor, is, is really just the word grace. Mary is a recipient of God's divine grace. It's not that Mary is full of grace, it's that she has received grace. She has been chosen by God as a vessel by which God will accomplish his redemption for his people. Now, we're not told at all in the story why her. We're not told. And I think that's intentional. Because grace gives no reason. It's precisely because of grace and grace alone that she's been chosen by the Almighty God for such a task. She was a sinner like any of us. She is for us a glorious picture of what grace is. The undeserved, unmerited favor of God. This is the angelic encounter that she has. And as we see, she is left troubled and perplexed, which is often the response of individuals in the Bible when they encounter an angel or some kind of spiritual being. And so Mary encounters the angel, and in verses 31 to 33, Mary is given a message from the angel. And it's here where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. Here we have an angelic message. Look at verses 31 to 33. And behold, Mary, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Mary is told by Gabriel that as a virgin she will conceive and bear a son and his name shall be Jesus. And we're not going to look at the significance of that statement this morning because in two weeks we're going to look more specifically at the name of Jesus. 
But what I want to do is unpack for us who this child will be in light of what Gabriel says about this boy named Jesus. And the first thing we see here is that he will be uniquely great. Uniquely great. I've stated he'll be uniquely great because there's been others in Israel's history that have been great. You can think of Abraham or Moses or David or Solomon and many other individuals who have been great. Even in chapter 1 verse 15 where really you have this parallel story where the angel comes to Zechariah to tell him that his wife Elizabeth who's barren is going to have a son and his name will be John the Baptist. And in chapter 1 verses 15 we're told that John the Baptist will be great before the Lord. But here the greatness of this child Jesus is unqualified. It's absolute. When you read the scriptures, you'll discover that greatness without a qualifier is an attribute of God. Psalm 135, verse 5, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. You see, what is, what is ascribed to God is here in this passage being ascribed to this child that Mary will bear and call Jesus. This child is a class in, in a class all by himself. His greatness is unmatched. There's no name in heaven. There's no name on earth that can compare to the greatness of this babe, this child that will be conceived in Mary's womb. And the reason for this is based upon what we're told next about him. He will be uniquely the son of the Most High. And I say uniquely again because in the Bible, there are other men that are actually referenced as sons of God. In fact, we as the children of God are considered sons and daughters of God by adoption. But, for example, in Luke chapter 3, we're given the genealogy of Jesus. And in the genealogy of Jesus, it begins with Jesus and it traces its way all the way back to Adam. And at the very end of the genealogy in Luke 3 verse 38, we're told what Adam, what Adam is called. He is the son of Adam, the son of of God. Adam was called the son of God. He was to be in a sense this messianic figure for God. He was to represent God as his son. 2 Samuel 7 verses 14, you have the the story of God promising David that his throne will be established forever and In the immediate context, he's referring to David's offspring, Solomon, and he says of Solomon, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. You see, both Adam and David and Solomon were to be son-like kingly figures on behalf of God. Sonship was tied to God's messianic ruler that was set forth in the scriptures from long ago. Adam was meant to be a son of God. But he failed in his sonship 
by sinning against his creator. And it's the same for David and Solomon. See, in a sense, you could say that these individuals were small s sons that point forward to the unique capital S son, namely Jesus. He's the true son of the Most High. This child will have an earthly mother, but his father is none other than Almighty God. And this is precisely what the author of Hebrews seeks to demonstrate in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. He says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And then he describes who this Son is. And this is no ordinary Son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In other words, this son was before the creation of the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. David could not make such a claim of himself. Not even Adam could make such a claim. But this son claims that title. The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Neither David nor Adam could do such a thing. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And not only that, he then goes on to compare this son to the angels. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? He's quoting from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Not only that, he also, in verse 6, summons the angels to worship the son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And then in verse 8, he ascribes, divinity to the son but of the son he says that is of the son god says your throne O god is forever and ever god says to the son your throne is forever and ever this child is that son that the writer of hebrews is referring to he is the unique son of the most high who is worthy of angelic worship and worthy of of our worship. This child is unique because he alone is divine. This child is divinity clothed in humanity. He is the Son of the Most High. See, Christianity has always affirmed that God is one, yet he's also triune. He is one God, but in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As the Nicene Creed, which was adopted in 325 AD, states, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. And then it describes Jesus God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made. Every time I read that, those sentences, I just want to worship the mystery 
of our triune God. You know, many Christians can tend to speak negatively about creeds in regards to our faith. They'll say things like, creeds and confessions undermine the mystery of our faith, but I beg to differ. I think the opposite is true. The great creeds and confessions of our faith are actually meant to protect and preserve the great mysteries of our faith. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity, one God in three persons, cannot be fully explained by mere human rationale. It isn't irrational, but it's supra-rational. That is, the doctrine of the Trinity transcends human reason. It doesn't contradict it. And it's in the creeds that affirm this truth while also acknowledging and protecting the complete mystery of these truths. This child is the unique Son of God. And this passage also demonstrates the other great doctrine of our faith, which is the incarnation. That is, this child is divine, but also human. He is the unique Son of God, manifested in the flesh, born as a babe. He is, as the passage states, not only the Son of the Most High, but also the Son of David. This child to be born is both fully divine, but also fully human. And even Isaiah chapter 9 alludes to this reality. In verse 6, Isaiah prophesies and says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This child is human. It is a human child. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So on the one hand, he is a child. On the other hand, he is almighty God. As the Athanasian Creed declares, now this is the true faith. That we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and He is human from the essence of His Mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards to divinity, less than the Father as regards to humanity. Although He is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his persons. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. This Son of God has become one of us. By divinity, he is the Son of God, And by his humanity, he is the son of David. This is the child that will be born to Mary. So we see that he will be uniquely great. We see that he will be the son of the Most High and the son of David. We also see that he will be king. And his kingdom is forever. Look at verse 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
There's two things that I want us to see here about his kingship. First, he is the fulfillment of David's kingly line. He is the one who will be given the throne of David. God promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that his throne would be forever. And it's in this child Jesus by which that promise is going to be fulfilled. God will give to Jesus the throne of his father David. Throughout the prophets, God spoke of a day where the people of God would serve both God and David their king. For example, in Jeremiah 39, we're told this, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And Ezekiel 37, 24-25, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in that, the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever." Yet both of these passages are long after David has passed away. Who is it that these prophets are referring to? Well, they're referring to the son of David. That is the greater David. His name is Jesus. The fulfillment of of these prophecies are beginning here in verses 32 and 33. God's beginning to fulfill what he promised so long ago to David and to all of Israel. They will have a king who will reign over them. And of course, unlike Israel, we know that before he is crowned king, he will suffer and die as a slave. The cross will precede his coronation. Humiliation will precede his exaltation. But nevertheless, this child is the fulfillment of the throne of David. He is the king. And he will reign over the house of Jacob as we read here, that is the house of Israel. But we know that not only will he reign over Israel, he will also reign over all of creation and all the peoples of the world. And it's not just the New Testament that testifies to this, but also the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this incredible vision of this Son of Man, and and this Son of Man is really this divine-like figure And we're told in this vision that Daniel has, we're told this in verse 14, and to him, that is this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. You see, God is keeping his promises. Christmas is a reminder that he is keeping his promises All these promises in the Old Testament about this king who will reign and deliver his people, they are beginning to be fulfilled here in this encounter with Mary. He is doing what he said he would do. This virgin girl will be the means by which God accomplishes his purposes. In this child, Jesus, all the promises of God will find their fulfillment. So we see that he is 
the one who will rule on David's throne. Secondly, we see that his kingdom will always be. As the end of verse 33 says, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This also alludes to Daniel 7, verses 14, where Daniel says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What's so significant about this? What's the point? Well, here's the point. Christmas is political. God, through the angel Gabriel, is making a political statement. And it isn't politically correct. Israel at this time is under Roman occupation. But in these very words, God is declaring that Rome's days are numbered. In fact, every kingdom established by man is numbered. Babylon rose to power by the providence of God, but they were defeated by the Persians by the providence of God. The Persians rose to power and were defeated by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. The Greeks rose to power and were defeated by Rome, and Rome too has fallen. The kingdoms of mankind, though they be great, they are but for a season. For just as man is like the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow, so the kingdoms of mankind are like the grass that are here today and gone tomorrow. One day America will not be great. There's only one kingdom that shall reign forever. There's only one king that shall reign forever. And his name is Jesus Christ. This baby that was born on Christmas morn. Every kingdom shall fall before him. Every knee shall bow before him. For he alone is king of kings. He alone has been entrusted by God with a kingdom forever. This is the message Gabriel has brought to Mary. She will be the mother of this child who will be great, son of the Most High. He will be king and his kingdom will endure forever. Now if you place yourself... In Mary's shoes, you can only imagine what she must have been going through at this point. Remember, she's just a teenage girl. What was she feeling? What was she thinking? What were the questions that she had? In verse 34, we're we're given a small glimpse into the mind of this young lady. Look at verse 34. And Mary, after she hears all of this news, said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? How will this be since I am a virgin? Literally, since I do not know a man. Now, it's easy to think that Mary is doubting. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Mary believes But she wonders in astonishment how this will come to be because she is a virgin. 
And the reason why I think she's not doubting is because this story with Gabriel coming to Mary is parallel to the story in chapter 1 of the angel Gabriel coming to Zechariah in the temple. And the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that he's going to have a son that his wife Elizabeth, who's old and barren, will conceive. And there's this dialogue between Gabriel and Zechariah. And Zechariah asks a very similar question to Mary, but for his question, he is rebuked. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, we read this, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? In reference to John's birth. For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah didn't believe, and he was rebuked by the angel for it. Whereas Mary was never rebuked. And I think the contrast, I wish I could preach both of these passages parallel, the contrast is meant to be powerful. Zechariah is the priest of God and he is in the temple of God when he experiences this vision and the angel appears to him and him as the priest of God doubts God. Whereas Mary, this 15, 14 year old virgin teenage girl shows faith. I think Calvin puts it right when he says, This question of Mary was not so contrary to faith because it arose from admiration than from distrust. And so Mary asks this question precisely because she's a virgin. And in light of this question, the angel Gabriel reassures her. And he does this in two ways. He gives her reassurance. First, he explains to her, How this will actually happen. How is it that she as a virgin will conceive? And we're told that this child will be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now this this isn't the mythologies of the Greek gods who would come down and have intercourse with humans. This is merely God's way of saying that this child will be conceived by a miraculous working of God, the Holy Spirit. It will not be by natural means, Mary, but by the miraculous power of God. This Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will overshadow you. Alluding to Old Testament themes with the tabernacle. God overshadowed the tabernacle. Now he is going to overshadow Mary because in this woman resides the Son of Almighty God. You know, when you read through the Bible, you'll discover patterns. Themes that tend to come up again and again. And one of those patterns in the Bible is God accomplishing his redemptive purposes through barren women. For example, you have Sarah, Abraham's wife. She's 90 years old, she's old, (laughs) and she's barren. 
But it's through her that God promises Abraham that his seed will be like the stars in heaven. And she gives birth then to Isaac. And Isaac, of course, marries Rebekah. And we discover once again that Rebekah is also barren. You see, throughout the Bible, the promise of the seed is threatened. But God intervenes and gives her twins Jacob and Esau, and it's through Jacob that God's promises will be fulfilled. Or you think of Hannah in 1 Samuel. She too is barren, but God answers her prayers and gives her a son named Samuel. And this prophet Samuel is the one who anoints King David. And then you come to the New Testament and you have Elizabeth who is also old and barren, but God intervenes and she gives birth to John the Baptist who will prepare the way for the Lord. God is using these women in miraculous ways. Women are essential to the redemptive plan of God. Even barren women. And it's almost as if God is saying that despite all the many obstacles barrenness, conflict, whatever it may be, my redemptive purposes will be accomplished. Barrenness will not stop what I'm going to do. But here with Mary, God ups the ante. Mary isn't barren. She's a virgin. She's never known a man. But this isn't a roadblock for God. In fact, it's precisely because she's a virgin that she's chosen. God wants to make clear that his redemptive purposes can only be accomplished by his miraculous intervention. And God also wants to make clear that this child is no ordinary child. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit and that's why this child will be called Holy and the Son of God. As he says in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, or in light of this, because it's the Holy Spirit, this child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, Jesus was human in every way that we are human, but there is one aspect of his humanity that is distinct from ours. He was and has been always sinless. He is holy, pure, righteous. There is not a single fault that you could find with him. He never thought evil thoughts. He never had evil attitudes. He never said evil things. He never did evil acts. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He was not corrupted by sin because he was not born of fallen man, but of God by the Holy Spirit. He is the Holy King. So first, he reassures her by explaining to her how she will conceive. Secondly, he also reassures her by telling her that her relative Elizabeth, though she's barren, she has conceived precisely because God can do the impossible. Look at verse 36 and 37. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in 
Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary, know know that nothing is too hard for God. Your relative Elizabeth who was barren has now conceived. And therefore, Mary, know this, that if God can cause a barren woman to conceive, he can also cause a virgin woman to conceive. Because there are no limitations to what God can do, for nothing will be impossible with him. And in verse 38, we see Mary's response to the angel's reassurance. And what we see is a faith-filled servant. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She responds in faith and obedience to the news that she's been given. She's a mere teenage girl. And she responds in faith and obedience. So what does this mean for us? What what significance does this story have for us? Well, if you're here this morning, and you might identify as a Christian, but you're not actually one who loves and treasures Jesus, you don't actually know him, or you might not identify as a Christian at all. You need to ask, is this true? Did this actually take place? Did the Son of God, the infinite God, become a human baby? Is he really king over all? And and I pray and hope you don't dismiss these questions because you think you're a modern individual and you know these miraculous things just can't happen. The only reason you think that is because you've been predisposed to think that because you've grown up in a materialistic, secularized society. You probably haven't spent a whole lot of time asking yourself, can miracles happen? Because if there is an all-powerful God, There is no reason for why miracles couldn't happen. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not mythologies. They're historical, theological accounts. In fact, just look at how Luke begins his Gospel here in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. He is seeking to demonstrate historical accuracy. He says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, we have no idea who he was, that you may have, and here's the reason for why he wants to give him an orderly account, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. 
Luke's goal is to give an orderly account so that this individual, Theophilus, may know with certainty what he has been taught is true. Which means when Luke records the virgin birth, he's recording it because he believes it actually happened. And so I pray that you would ask yourself and you would wrestle with, is this true? Because if it is true, it has major ramifications for your life. If this baby Jesus is the Son of God and the King of the universe, He is deserving and worthy of your allegiance. And what we will see in the coming weeks is that this King also has provided the way for you to become a citizen of his kingdom, if only you will give your allegiance to him. And the way that he's provided is not what you probably think. See, my question for you this morning is, will you be like Mary and respond in faith? Will you believe? Secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus, of which I know most of you are, know this. You're not on the wrong side of history, no matter what our prime minister might say. Because you're on the side of the king of history. Christmas is a reminder that no matter what happens politically in our world, no matter what happens in Canada or America or China, wherever, no matter who comes to places of power, we are a part of a kingdom that shall have no end. And we serve a king like no other, for he is holy. He's a good and gracious king. We are never, as Christians, on the wrong side of history. Thirdly, to be a Christian is to believe in the miraculous. You can't be a Christian if you don't believe that God can truly do that which is impossible. Our salvation depends on a miraculous working God. And Christmas reminds us that our world is enchanted and that God is accomplishing his purpose, purposes through his miraculous means. And finally, this passage, I think, is meant to leave us with mystery. This child is both divine and human. This child, as the Son of God, is eternal. But as Jesus, the babe, he is born within time. There is much here in this passage that cannot be adequately explained and articulated through human reason. But there is much here that is worthy of our worship and adoration. And I pray that during this Christmas season, you would take time to marvel at the mystery that we call Christmas. Allow your heart to be stirred by hope as this baby will also one day return as king and establish his throne forever. Let's pray. Father, 
do just that this morning in our hearts. Fill us with hope and wonder as we ponder the glorious truth that your Son came into this world, humbled himself, and took on human flesh in order that he might save us and redeem us. He is our King, and we worship him as King. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.